Good morning and welcome to episode 451 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I'm Ben Lindbergh, joined as always by Sam Miller. I have no no particular topic today. I have many topics that are worthy of a few minutes of discussion and no topics that are worthy of half an hour of discussion. So we will string some of them together and see how it goes. I think, um, did you want to start with something? I do want to start with something. Okay. Uh, in reference to our conversation about 3-0 yes, swinging. I was going to ask uh, you about that. A few days ago, I saw today the most, uh, to me, it was the most remarkable statistic. Uh, I didn't know it before, so I'm going to tell you, and, and now you'll know it. Um, and I'm, I'm fairly certain that, that you wouldn't have, wouldn't have guessed this, but uh, 3-0 swings. Uh, let's see. If I'm, if I'm understanding this uh, correctly... Mm-hmm. Uh, this is according to Chris Moran uh, of Beyond the Box Score, and it was uh, just from a few weeks ago. According to, to Chris, if I'm reading this chart right, 28% of 3-0 swings are on pitches outside the strike zone. Hmm. Wow. Which, uh, that's incredible. Yeah. Right? I mean, <laughs> that's that's incredible, right? Isn't that incredible? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of them are an inch outside the strike zone, but even so. Right, but I mean, everybody said, I mean, you should be keyholing it, right? You should only be looking for a pitch that's, you know, dead red. Like, you only want a perfect pitch on 3-0, otherwise you shouldn't swing. And uh, So, you know, I guess there are pitches outside the strike zone that are super hittable, but usually they're <laughs> off-speed pitches. Usually it's like a breaking ball that's an inch high might be incredibly hittable, well, but... It's hard to imagine a fastball that's outside the strike zone anywhere that would be an ideal pitch to hit, right? Well, yeah, right. And you and I often talk about how maybe people overrate pitchers' command and their ability to actually hit their spots. And and it seems like maybe they can't actually do it more than two-thirds of the time or so. So is the corollary... Exactly. This is exactly what I was thinking. Is the corollary that hitters cannot actually judge the location of the pitch as accurately as we tend to think. Exactly. The, basically, the, the fundamental job for a pitcher is to throw strikes, and the fundamental job of a hitter is to identify strikes, and both of them are bad at it, even when, it's, <laughs> even, even when there are no challenges, really. When, the, when there should be no... Even in the easiest circumstances uh, mm-hmm. for their job, it is still more difficult than we imagine... And it just goes back to my theory, or I guess it's not really my theory, but my um, my sort of fundamental confusion about the sport of baseball at the highest level is I can't tell whether it's that hitters are really bad at hitting uh, or pitchers are really bad at pitching, or I guess another way to say that is whether pitching is the incredibly hard thing or whether hitting is the incredibly hard thing, because uh, I do see Chris Davis strike out. Uh, David Ortiz. Was it David Ortiz who he struck out? Uh, yeah, I think so. That sounds yeah. familiar. Yeah. I, so I see Chris Davis strike out David Ortiz swinging. No, it was Adrian Gonzalez. Wait, mm. no. Maybe, yeah, it was Adrian Gonzalez. Yeah. So I do see... I'll Google Chris, it if you'll give me a special dispensation to Google something during the podcast. I guess the point I'm saying is that pitchers who... Uh, sorry, position players who pitch do way better than they ought to. Mm-hmm. And pitchers who hit also do way better than they ought to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's either really hard to hit, 
uh, because Chris uh, Adrian Gonzalez can't even hit you know Drew Butera or or Chris Davis or or whoever scrub comes in from Mopoborg, or it's really hard to pitch mm-hmm. uh, because uh, Craig Kimbrell can't even strike out pitchers reliably. Uh huh. Um, it was Adrian Gonzalez. It was also Jared Saltomaki in the same game, it looks like. Uh-huh. Um, all right. So, uh, well, so I wanted to ask you about a couple of things that you touched on there. So the just occurred to me that it's been a while since we've had a correction, uh, or clarification and, and this might be one on Monday <laughs> if I've misread this chart. Yeah. I'm sure it's not because we've stopped making mistakes. That's true. <laughs> Maybe people are just given up on on correcting us um so uh well so so you wrote so does that help explain the even more to my mind surprising stat that you shared on wednesday that that the league average batting average on balls in play on 3-0 is only 302 which to me is inexplicable um but maybe if if guys, could, but I mean, yeah. the home run rate, home run rate does go way up though. So guys uh-huh. are hitting the ball hard, and and you know one thing also is that, I mean, BABIP is so weird. Uh, last year I wrote about Pablo Sandoval's uh, swings inside the zone versus swings outside the zone, and he essentially has the exact same BABIP whether he's swinging at pitches inside the zone or outside mm-hmm. of the zone. Yeah. Which you can take either way. I mean, he's a great hitter with a very good batting average. So I guess you would take it as pretty impressive that he manages. The same Babbitt, but Babbitt's just—it's just fundamentally confounding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and well, so you—you you wrote an article today following up on that three-zero swing stuff, and you talked about which teams or which managers advise their players to swing on three-zero and which don't. So, would you, if you were manager Sam Miller, would you just give your whole lineup the green—the green light on three-zero? Would you do it selectively? Would you give it to no one? What is your inclination? My inclination has has always been to swing a lot more than they do, mm-hmm. um, but the I mean the the, I, the idea behind that piece is that even uh, even now even after sort of fifteen years of of uh, readjusting our thoughts about count control, it's not clear whether swinging at three zero is a stat head friendly thing or a non stat head friendly thing. It it doesn't really fall into one of the camps the way that almost every action in baseball does, mm-hmm. uh, and you have stat head teams on each side of the divide, and you have non-stat head teams on each side of the divide. And I looked at some, you know, maths that people had done, including a piece in PP in 2011, I think, to sort of answer this. But none of them were really all that rigorous, and none of them were really convincing, and none of them necessarily agreed with each other. Uh, so uh, I don't think it's an answered question. And I, that that also is interesting to me. It, it feels like this is such a a simple thing that we see all the time. And uh, there is a lot, anytime, oh, you know, it seems like practically anytime somebody gets the green light and swings at it, somebody writes about it. Somebody mentions it in the game story or in a blog post or whatever. Uh, I mean, there's been, it, and yet there seems to be a lot more work done on, on every every other possible uh, curiosity in baseball, but not really necessarily 3-0 pitches. Um, so, but my instinct has always been to swing more. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think it's a, it's, you know, it, it, it's a pitch that you never get back. I mean, it, there's no pitch like a 3-0 fastball down the middle. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Drew Butera 
Um, and we talked about Steve Tollison pitching yesterday, but we sort of buried the lead as, as far as position player pitchers go. Um, Drew Butera pitched. It was his second career appearance. He also pitched in, in 19, uh, 2012. And both times he has pitched, he has looked fantastic. He has thrown 95-mile-per-hour fastballs, and he's thrown something that, that is classified as a changeup. It's like a mid-70s sort of sinking, fading type of pitch. And he's looked great. And it's like it's like he's sort of a savant or something. It's like we've seen Drew Butera just sort of be a be a, you know, backup catcher guy who can't really hit at all and has a career 186, 236, 273 batting line. And then he gets on the mound and he looks like a late inning reliever. So if you were Drew Butera's agent, uh, who is apparently named David Schwartz, would you recommend that he change careers immediately? Um, hmm, probably not. I mean, he has he has he has played in four straight major league seasons, um, yeah, or five, I guess this is now, and he has carved out some sort of part time role for himself. He has not hit at all, but he's making um, yeah, he's making three quarters of a million dollars this year. He'll probably make you know a million and a half next. And at this point, I mean, he's thirty years old. Uh, it's unlikely, I would say, that he's going to get any big payout as a pitcher, even if he were converted mm-hmm. and uh, right now, um, and so it's probably too risky. I mean, this is a guy who's going to retire, you know, having made somewhere between probably three and nine million dollars. Uh, and so, if I were Drew Butera's agent at this point, I would say uh, go for nine. You know, just push for nine. Don't, you know, don't do anything radical. Now, knowing how his career went, uh, if I were, you know, his agent in two thousand and seven. Or if I were the Twins in 2007, um, I guess what, he was a he was with the Mets in 2007, I think. But anyway, uh, I would actually he was with the Twins and the Mets in 2007. Mm. That was the year he was traded. Uh, I would probably consider it. Yeah, I mean when I was when I did the, the article for um, ESPN the magazine a couple years ago about uh, position players converting to to pitching, uh, everybody said that like the 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 first the first uh, place you look for your uh, conversions is catchers because they've got this uh, they've got this short arm stroke that mm-hmm. you look for in a reliever and uh, so that you're basically looking for that guy or maybe you know maybe a shortstop um, very few outfielders do it um, and then you know nobody at the other positions has the arm for it nobody at first or second has the arm for it so catchers where they they all come from um, or a lot of them come from, and yeah, I mean, it seems to me that in retrospect, uh, probably somewhere along the line, Butera might have made a different decision, and it would have been the right decision. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen so many we've seen so many catchers become dominant relievers in the last half, uh, I guess, decade or so mm-hmm. that uh, it's not it's it doesn't it's not a novelty or unrealistic at all to suggest that uh, he could have been a you know a high leverage reliever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kenley Jansen did it. Rob Johnson is doing it, and he's like 37, and not, <clears throat> not to mention Jeff Francoeur. Is Jason Lane still going? Yeah, Jason Lane, too. I think, he, Jason I think Lane Jason Lane, Lane is Lane. starting, I think, in AAA somewhere. El Paso, yeah. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, seven starts for El Paso. Huh. So, 37 years old. 12, wow. Not this, I tell you what, 41 innings. 
4.14 ERA. So far, so good. <laughs> 12 strikeouts. Yeah. And eight walks and six homers in 41 <laughs> innings. That is, that's an ambitious conversion. You rarely see the, the position player to starting pitcher conversion. That seems yeah. particularly rare. Got some, uh, yeah, I'm going to do some fifth math real quick. <laughs> uh, we have a FIP of, actually not that bad, 5.2. Mm. Uh, we should also mention that the Mets pitching staff got its first hit of the season. So they, yep. they, they had to bring in someone else. Right? Major League <laughs> debut. A guy yeah. made his Major League debut. Jacob de, de Gram. Um, <laughs> so I like the idea that they had to dip into the minors to get someone who could get a hit. Mm-hmm. They couldn't do it with the, the collection of pitchers that they had on hand. Yeah, you do sort of imagine that this is like the scene in the movie where, uh, like, Kelly, what's his name? Kelly Leak? Leak. Kelly Leak rides up on the motorcycle and they're all, like, look around like who is this kid <laughs> right yeah it looked from seeing the video it looked like he didn't know about this streak of what was it it was 0 for 64 streak or something did um, the mets know about this streak because when I, yeah. I watched every at bat that they had and, and it wasn't really ever mentioned up to 42 yeah it looked from the bench reaction there was a lot of celebrating going on there but it didn't look like Degrom. No, but it was a guy making his major league debut true and, and he got his first hit so true there would be and it was a pitcher I mean, even if mm-hmm. in any circumstance, I feel like the bench would be making a making a ruckus, laughing, yeah. doing that sort of hijinks. You're right. Hard to distinguish. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about was the Angels and their their productive org guys. This was uh, this was a, a I saw you retweet a tweet by Alden Gonzalez who wrote about this in a game story, and this is. This is a topic that is of interest to you because you wrote an article about how the Angels farm system has been ranked last the last couple of years and how they are trying to turn it around. And they have gotten some contributions out of members of that farm system who were not top prospects in any way. Are those guys um, a symptom of the system being underrated and maybe some bias in prospect lists? Or are those guys not any good? Um, well, boy, I don't exactly know how to answer that. Depends on who we're talking about. I mean, some of the guys that they're getting contributions from uh, are from back when the system was good. You know, I mean, I'm I'm not talking about Trout and you know, like like Howie Kendrick. I'm not talking, I'm not going that far back. But like Garrett Richards, for instance, is from when the farm system was good and. Uh, so, you know, like you wouldn't necessarily count him, but, um, yeah, uh, the angels, I feel like the angels system while very bad, uh, it did have a lot of guys who seemed like they were going to have, you know, have that, that they were likely to have careers that they were, you know, likely to be major leaguers and they just didn't offer any upside and there was no upside guy to put any sparkle on the, on the farm system. So, um, like you had a top ten, um, where there was nobody who belonged in a top five, and that you know that's one big reason why the system gets ranked so lowly. But all ten of them, you know, could have been you know like a six or a seven. And so um, you know, like uh, C.J. Crone, for instance, is going to have a career, and Grant Green is probably going to have a you know, probably going to have a little bit of a career. Um, and who else is contributing? Matt Shoemaker had a good start. He's not, you know, he's probably nothing. 
Uh, Michael Kahn predates this conversation. Corey Rasmus is not much. So, uh, I mean, they've, they've got... They also have no pitching in their uh, in their farm system, which even even they would acknowledge. Even when defending the system, they would acknowledge that well, they didn't really have any pitching, mm-hmm. um, and they're not really getting much pitching. But you know, they've they've had some relief arms emerge over the last few years in the system, um, and they're going to end up having three or four pretty re- pretty good relievers come out of the system. And Mike Morin, Morin, I think is is one of those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's, it's like, uh, Efren point- Navarro, Luis Jimenez. Yeah. Well, those guys aren't really contributing though. Like mm-hmm. they're there, yeah. but like Luis Jimenez isn't doing much. He's just filling a spot. Efren Navarro just came up, um, mm-hmm. and you know, has played like a couple games, but well, I guess, I guess he's had a couple good games. Um, but you know, no, Navarro's, Navarro's basically a defense first <laughs> quad A player. Mm-hmm. Who can't even really hit enough to be a quad A hitter, um, but you know, he, uh, defense first first baseman, I should say. Uh, like I don't think he has any outfield experience really, and they called him up to play left field. So that's not really the situation you're looking for. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, um, I don't know. I mean, they're gonna have they're gonna have you know they'll produce. 10,000, I don't know, 10,000 is maybe a bit much, but yeah, they'll produce 10,000 plate appearances. Will they? Out of their farm system? Yeah, probably 10,000 plate appearances. They just won't be particularly great, and, uh, you know, mostly they'll be forgotten in the next few years, and no, none, of, none of those guys will be an all-star. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they, they'll, they'll get some quality, you know, they'll get some role players out of it. They definitely have players who are good enough to be role players. Mm-hmm. It, was not, it was not a system that was going to produce nobody. Right. And we've, well, yeah, we've seen this with uh, teams like, uh, well, we talked about the White Sox and how Kenny Williams said that even though their, their prospect rankings are always bad, they're always near the bottom. They have managed to graduate some people who were maybe not the high ceiling types, but they, they contributed. So uh, maybe, yeah, I, I don't know. There probably is some bias in these, in these scouting lists towards, Towards ceiling as opposed to major league readiness, um, I think the that's other, probably fair. The other thing, I don't think that it's necessarily fair to compare them to the White Sox either. The White Sox would would say that they, you know, have a system that that gets overlooked but has churned out good players. The Angels' system wasn't very good, and and it was for obvious reasons. They had completely blown a draft in 2010. I think they had five first round picks and produced, you know, basically nothing out of it uh, because they were drafting toolsy guys who didn't turn into anything that happens when you draft toolsy high schoolers every year some years they turn into mike trout and some years they they don't um and then they uh they forfeited a ton of first round picks to sign a bunch of guys and then they had a big like they had a scandal in their um international scouting they essentially abandoned their international scouting and development for a few years and weren't investing anything down there so it's not like they, um, I mean, there's a real reason that they weren't uh, well respected uh, for those few years. They like there were reasons that they hadn't, uh, well, and they traded a bunch of guys too. They traded a ton of guys, you know, for Granky and for um, you know Kiaspo and for Heron and and so on. Mm-hmm. So um, so it's I don't think it's particularly unfair to criticize 
them, and I don't, I don't even think that they would deny it. They had some institutional disadvantages for a few years. Um, I forget where I was going with that, uh, but in their defense, uh, yeah, I think a, a lot of their their top prospects, in as much as they have prospects, tended to, over the last year or two, were guys who were drafted in like the fourth, fifth, and sixth rounds, mm-hmm. and and they would say that those guys are are always undervalued by prospect rankings because uh, they don't have the kind of, um, uh, you know, the, nobody fell in love with them, you know, originally. You know, no, no one fell in love with them when they were first scouted by, you know, prospect magazines and, and industry guys and other teams. And so they just, they're always kind of underheralded. So, uh, you know, if you have a third round second baseman, uh, you know, you're just, that guy's never going to get you any buzz, no matter mm-hmm. how good he does in the minors, is what they would say. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Trout, we have started to get some questions about him and his strikeout rate and his slump. And it seems to me, I mean, I was the, I, I was early to to wonder about this, and I, I don't know. We were talking about it when he was striking out a lot, when his contact rate was low, and I was, I was asking if it was silly to even be thinking about this. Should I bother writing about this? And I, I'm thinking we. We probably have a tendency to overreact to small samples even more in the case of really good players because uh, we kind of expect them to be really good all the time. And so there have been a bunch of articles about Trout lately. What's wrong with Trout? Why isn't Trout hitting? And I think Gabe Kapler tweeted something about how we should probably all all back up a bit and calm down a bit about Trout and how we were all all fussing about Miguel Cabrera not hitting not long ago, and now Miguel Cabrera is hitting. So, uh, I'm, I'm, I mean, Trout, again, he struck out twice tonight. He was over three. His strikeout rate is is high. It is close to 30% now, which is unusual. That's not what we've seen from him. And yet, I still don't know what to make of that, and I'm defaulting to nothing um, because he... Still making contact, still not chasing a ton. I think a lot of those strikeouts are, are called, if I remember right. And I just, uh, I don't know. I'm kind of inclined to dismiss it. It's Mike Trout, so anything he does is is news, rightfully so. But um, it's nothing to worry about, right? Second in the AL in war. Um, <laughs> right. Why? Wait, uh, I'm. that's interesting that, uh, that a lot of them are called... I think that's what is the what case. do you think what do you think that means? Um, like what does that tell you? Uh, I don't I don't know. Um, I mean, to me, it's probably less concerning than if he were suddenly swinging and missing at everything. Um, but I, I I don't know. Maybe it tells you he's being too passive or something, or that his his pitch recognition is is temporarily off something like that. But um, again, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it would probably be more worrisome to me if he were just not able to make contact anymore. But his, his contact rate is is close to what it was. It's a little down, but but not a whole lot. But he is, I mean, he's leading the American League in strikeouts, and that sounds scary. But of course, he, he has gotten a lot of plate appearances, and he hits close to the top of the order. And, and that's part of it. He's just gotten a lot of chances to strike out. But when you see Mike Trout leading the league in something that's generally regarded as negative, then it's understandable that people are talking about that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, um, uh, I'm, I'm still waiting. I, like I said, I want you to be the first person to, to, to call an end to Mike Trout's greatness, but you might be late. People are starting to, (laughs) to write those columns. I know. Well, I tried. I talked to him. If he had told me that he was no longer great, I would have written that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have any great insight on it. It does seem like he's striking out a lot. (laughs) He, he is. <laughs> that's that's my impression by watching him. Uh-huh. Spot on. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I also <laughs> wanted to ask you where Johnny Cueto ranks on your list of pitchers that you you need to win one game and you can give him the start. As he is on, he's on an incredible run, and he he had a, another great start. Uh, granted, it was against the Padres who everyone has great starts against this year, but he is now what he's had nine starts, three complete games. Uh, every start I think has been above seven innings and he's allowed two or fewer runs in each one, which is like the first time anyone's done that since the dead ball era, or maybe it was to start a season, which is not nearly as, as impressive. Um, but he, if you go back to 2011 and yeah. you, he's, I mean, he's been inning per inning, just about the best pitcher in baseball. Clayton Kershaw, a little better maybe, but that's yes. that's it. If you sort by whatever, ERA plus is is what I did just as a default. But he's before his his latest complete game, he was at 161 and Kershaw was at 168 and Verlander was at 147. So big gap from Cueto to the next guy, although there's also a big innings gap. He he has pitched about 500 innings since 2011, including 2011. And guys like Kershaw and and Verlander and Cliff Lee have pitched well over 700 innings. So there's a big, big difference in value there. But start per start, for start, he has been fantastic. So um, yeah, you he... know when uh, I well, I thought you were going to fade out, and I was. I was. Jump Go in. ahead. Uh, yeah, uh, you know uh, when. Goldstein, Kevin Goldstein would talk about how there are only like, you know, one and a half aces in all of baseball and people would get all mad and then go, what do you mean? There's 30, num- there's 30 teams that have to be 30 number ones. Right. And he would say, no, number one is, uh, it's like an abstract concept. It's not, yeah. it's not set in stone, you know? And yeah, and which he, always struck me as a, just a kind of unproductive debate. Yeah. I mean, who cares? It's a, it's a, it's a label and you can put, mm-hmm. you can put labels. However, yeah. So I, I think, I think it's fine. I mean, I, what he's saying is that there is an emotional idea behind a number one starter. It, literally there are 30 number one starters, but uh, figuratively, uh, emotionally, we know the difference between a number one and, a, and, you know, number one with a, with a, with a capital N and a number one with a lower case N, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't have a problem with, with, with that. But I do feel like when we talk about who number ones are, number a number one in that in that uh, construction is an emotional reaction to a guy. It's like we look at him and say, "Oh, well, is, is he a number one?" And when people and um, I think Sky Kaufman a, a, a couple months ago, I think it was Sky tweeted, uh, you know, a, a request for people to name their number ones, or maybe it was somebody else. And I did my list of number ones, and oh, I think he had a Google Doc, and you were supposed mm-hmm. to vote on who's a number one. Now, yeah, that, I think that was it. Mm-hmm. And and when you get emotional, like it really distorts who the number ones are. And so, like the other day when we had uh, Jack Moron, and I mentioned that 
Kyle Loesch has the 13th best ERA plus over the last four seasons, and it's better than David Price, and it's better than Felix Hernandez. Jim, uh, Jim Breen, right? J.P. Breen. Yeah, sorry, J.P. Yeah. Breen. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's because there's only two Brewers fans. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so anyway, um, uh, but nobody would put Kyle Loesch on their list, and they certainly wouldn't put Kyle Loesch on their list ahead of Felix Hernandez, and Cueto's the same kind of thing. I just feel like nobody puts him there. In fact, it's almost like the less you know about baseball, the more likely you are to put Cueto on the list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's and that's right. You should put Cueto on the list. Yeah. Cueto has been significantly better than all the guys that you would name. He's been significantly better than you, Darvish, and Steven Strasburg, mm. and David Price, and Felix Hernandez, and Zach Granke, and probably probably Adam Wainwright. And he's made just as many starts as Adam Wainwright yeah. in that time. Um, and is, is it just a sinker ball bias or something? Is it just a ground ball guy who doesn't have the, the truly insane strikeout rates and the truly insane velocity readings is and is it that plus the injuries is is that why he's underrated um yeah probably do you think there's a small guy bias yeah that could be well i wonder i I mean mean, in a way it's even more impressive if you're like i don't know if there's a small guy bias when it comes to the, like like if you're a fantasy team, I think that probably most people are capable of um, of putting size in perspective and drafting the best guy. But the emotional element of an ace, mm. but specifically, I think we want to see a big mouth-breathing giant who stands tall on the mound and looks bigger than the hitter and screams at the manager when he comes out to pull him from, from a game in the eighth inning uh, and, yeah, has, has the big fastball. I feel like... With Pedro, that almost added to his aura. Yeah, that's true. It can work. In I mean, all sorts of different things can work, but it's harder. You know, it's like, uh, yeah. I mean, you can you can definitely be successful in different ways, but yeah, you just have to be extra extra successful in order to kind of overcome that stereotype. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe just a hypothesis. But yeah, if John, I mean, well, look, just look at it this way. If Johnny Cueto were six five, just me putting that in your head just changed something in mm-hmm. in how you think of him. If he, and e- right. even with the sinker, I mean, look, Ubaldo Jimenez throws a sinker, right? I guess he throws a sinker ninety nine, so maybe that's not fair. But um, uh, yeah, big guy with a sinker, you know, has downhill plane. If you're a big guy with a sinker, then you have downhill plane. If you're a little guy with a sinker, then it's like, oh, durability concerns. So he needs to, like, assume control of Matt Latos's body while Latos is on the DL. And then then people will respect him. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Although even <laughs> Cueto is, is striking people out this year, too. He's doing that also now. So mm-hmm. he just does everything. Johnny Cueto, really good. Um, yeah, I... RJ is the one who... Yeah, he wrote... What was that? That was a while ago. That was like... Two years ago, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's the one who, who who first put it in my mind that we are all missing something about Johnny Cueto. And Johnny Cueto's fun, too, because he does... You know, he's got that incredible pickoff move. And, like, I just like a guy... I, I To me, a pickoff, a good pickoff move is the pitcher equivalent of, like, smart hustle. Like, I, I just like that a guy would put that extra energy into doing something that... Uh, matters more than 
than probably most pitchers want to put the effort into. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a story we we talked in the listener email show and and then in the Tommy John show about how maybe pitchers just shouldn't throw as hard as they possibly can throw and how that's that's difficult to do because there's a lot of incentive to throw really hard. Um, but in the long run, maybe you're better off not doing that, not being a max effort guy. And there was a great, great article by Tim Brown, uh, who writes a lot of great articles for Yahoo Sports about Zach Granke. And Granke, as always, uh, has interesting things to say on this subject. And he he says that he uh, he's pretty frank about not being not going 100 percent all the time. Uh, he has thrown his slider less because he is trying to preserve his arm. He says if it's a if it's a high leverage spot and he really needs an out, then he will throw the slider, but he will not throw the slider if he thinks he can get away with doing something else. Um, and he will not throw as hard as he can at all times. And Brown made the connection to a couple other guys recently, Jared Weaver, who he says asked out of a game because of fatigue, and uh, Jonathan Pavelbon, who declined to pitch in three consecutive games. And then I think uh, Hisashi Iwakuma just told his manager that he was done in, in a couple starts. Um, and I wonder whether this is the, the new thing that we're going to see. And he also mentions as a, as a contrast, uh, Nathan Ivaldi, who we've talked about a couple times recently, says that he throws every pitch as hard as he possibly can, which, which shows, which is why he throws harder than any other pitcher, I guess. Um, and so maybe, maybe that's sort of scary when you hear that, but, uh, Clayton Kershaw also says the same thing to Brown that he throws as hard as he can all the time also. And he really hasn't had any major injury problems. So I wonder whether this will be the new thing, whether there will be a change in, uh, in how this is, how acceptable this is deemed, whether, whether is is this the equivalent of not running out every ball to first base? Is this going to be a an old school versus new school thing where we, where the old school people argue that you have to give your max effort on every pitch, uh, just like you have to bust it down the line on every ground ball, whereas other people will say no, you want to you want to save your strength, you don't want to go full out because you you want to make sure that you're healthy for your next start. Is this going to be the new central thing? Or will everyone just accept that this is okay now? Now that we've seen so many Tommy John surgeries, uh, is it acceptable for pitchers to be open about not giving their maximum effort all the time? I don't even think that it has to do with the Tommy Johns. I think that there's always a... There's always been an, an, an appreciation for the fact that pitching, a, you know, starting a game is an endurance, uh, an endurance feat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Playing an entire baseball season is too, but not uh, not in the same way, or maybe not appreciated in the same way. Um, people see baseball players standing around a lot and think, "Well, why can't you run, you know, hard to first every time?" And I, I think sensibly, um, they ask that. But there's like a there's been a long tradition of pitchers pacing themselves. Christy Mathewson, very right. famous, famously uh, would talk about you know how he what, what how he would you know basically go like you know. Uh, less effort, like seven, I don't remember what it was, but like 70% effort, you know, 90% of the time, mm-hmm. so that he would have 100% effort 10% of the time. And, you know, Levon Hernandez, you know, mastered it and uh, is therefore the 
a legend of durability for an entire generation. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's just that it's not it's not a matter of being lazy. What, what Zach Greinke's talking about is inherently different. It's not it's not he's not saying oh, I'm, you know I just, I just don't want to throw my slider because it's you know it's too hard or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's about being more effective for the next pitch. It's a strategy. It's a strategy that I think everybody can intuitively appreciate. That's, I mean, that's sort of what Robinson Cano said, though, when he was it defending is, people, himself about not sprinting down to first. Um, it is what, I know, it, it's what he says, but it's not something that anybody has, it's not something that fans, like, kind of relate to. I mean, that's a very nuanced uh-huh. kind of uh, explanation of why you don't have to run 90 feet when it's your job to run 90 feet. Right. I feel like, though, I mean, Christy Matthewson's pitching a complete game all the time, right? And the the typical fan line, a certain traditional sort of fan who grew up seeing pitchers go deep into games says, you know, why can't these guys go deep into games? They're going five, six innings um, and sort of, I don't know, questioning their their manliness or something. Um, whereas, so if you're combining the fact that starters don't go deep into games anymore with this pronouncement that you're not giving your max effort on every pitch because you have to pace yourself for six innings instead of nine. I feel like that might be a, a harder sell for some people. Yeah. If it, right. If it's Granky saying he's not throwing as many sliders, I think that plays well. If it's Granky saying he should only have to go five innings a game, uh, then I would agree with you. I, I, you're right. I think that would play a lot worse. Although the sliders thing, I mean, if, if there, if if his slider is his most effective pitch, or he thinks it is uh, a more effective pitch than another pitch, then I mean that's if you're pacing yourself, then you're saying, well, I'm I'm taking a little off this pitch because I want to still have something left later in this game. I want to go into the seventh with something left. That's that's uh, that's a little different than saying I don't want to throw my slider because if I throw my slider all the time for years, I'll get hurt. At some point down the road, when I might not even be on the team that you're rooting for anymore, um, I feel like that maybe. And and I I'm totally on board with the the Granky approach, but I feel like if you're a if you're a fan of a team that wants and you want to win every game, and you're in a pennant race, and you have a guy who's saying I'm gonna save my arm for for later, for years down the road, when maybe I will have I'll be pitching for a team that is playing against your team. Um, you know, maybe that is something that would get some some pushback. Yeah, you're convincing me. Uh, you're you're <laughs> slowly convincing me because it does seem like what what Granky has exposed himself to here is um, in Game Six of the NLCS this year when he gives up um, the go ahead double in the seventh inning uh-huh. on a changeup. Uh-huh. Uh, what he's exposed himself to is everybody going. Well, if he'd thrown the slider, right. but he didn't throw the slider, <laughs> right. he shouldn't have been saving the slider. Like it's because it, he. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons to throw the change up there. Yeah, you don't. You know, there's no. It's, he doesn't have to throw the slider every time. But now, every pitch he ever gets hit on, uh, that isn't a slider, you could point to and go, well, if he'd thrown the slider that time, yes. you can assume that that's the one that he was saving the energy. <laughs> right. And based on his comments, I think that if, wouldn't happen. Right. right. If based it on... were the if it were the World Series, he would throw the slider whenever he felt that it was the best pitch to throw in yeah. that situation. But if you if yeah. you didn't really internalize his comments, if you just read the headline that says he he's throwing fewer sliders because he wants to save his arm, 
then then yes, there's yeah. the possibility there. Or even a solo home run in you know to the second batter in the first inning of the game that you lose one nothing. You know you could always you'll always have, like he's exposed himself to a level of second guessing that won't be fair and that won't be necessarily comfortable. Mm-hmm. So he probably just shouldn't have talked. But uh, <laughs> it is an interesting quote. Hey, I have a question for you though. Sure. Um, so we just talked about how Cueto is you know at the top of the game over the mm-hmm. last three plus years. And I remember you writing an article about Josh Johnson in early 2012, Uh-oh. very very early 2012 for ESPN Insider. And at the time, Josh I, Johnson. I don't. <laughs> what did yeah, I, I say? Uh, I couldn't find it, believe uh-huh. it or not. Uh, Josh Johnson at the time had the best ERA and ERA plus over the previous two years. Mm. And that's a little bit of cherry picking. But if you go back three at the time to, to uh, mimic Cueto's, he had a 158 ERA plus to Cueto's 161. Uh-huh. And in 70 starts to Cueto's, uh, to Cueto's uh, you know, 68. And um, Johnson is one of the guys who convinced you that the hurt or good model doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So should we, be, should we be assuming that Cueto will never be healthy reliably healthy uh and and before we know it he will also be awful uh hmm i think it's safe to assume or fair to assume that that he is not gonna he's not a workhorse now just because he is just because he has pitched three complete games already this year um i wouldn't necessarily expect him to be a a 200 inning guy he's he's had a history of these shoulder strains and and uh I mean, he hasn't had the sort of record that like that Josh Johnson has had, or that um, I don't know who else have I used as an example of that. Um, Sean Markham. Yes, right, Sean Markham. He hasn't he hasn't gotten to that point. Um, he hasn't. I mean, he hasn't had a surgery, for instance. I don't think. Just glancing at his his uh, injury record on his BP player card, so it hasn't gotten to that point. But that's that's clearly what holds him back from being at the top of that list of Kershaw's and Cliff Lee's and Verlander's is that he doesn't give you the innings that those guys do. Um, and so that's, that's fair. But part of, it seems like part of the lesson that you, that you learn from all of those guys is that there is a big drop in performance likely looming. Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know. That comes for, comes for all guys and probably, I, I would guess comes comes faster maybe for guys who have a, a long injury history, but his isn't as scary as Johnson's or Markham's. I don't think he's in the same class. Okay. All right. Uh, so that is it for today. Do you have Dellen Batances on any of your reliever league teams? Three of three of them. Three of my eleven. Mm. Yeah, he had a great. He struck yeah, out he had... six consecutive Mets uh, in yeah. his last outing. He. Face seven batters, struck out six. He now has a 44.8% strikeout rate, which I think is second in the majors to Craig Kimbrell, just be, just behind Kimbrell. Um, so the latest reliever to kind of turn into a, a strikeout monster when we weren't necessarily expecting it. Mm-hmm. He has pretty nasty stuff, if you've seen it. it is it, He looks the part. He is huge and, and has a really nasty breaking ball. Um, a, true number, a true number one. <laughs> right. Okay, so that's it for the week. Please send us emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. 
Please join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. Rate and review and subscribe to the show by clicking the link to the iTunes page in the BP post or just typing in Effectively Wild in the search bar. And please support our sponsor, Baseball Reference. Go to baseballreference.com, subscribe to the Play Index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back on Monday.